here for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us I am Kate Willett And I'm Julia Clare Before we get into our intro, I want to say that we do have a live show this Saturday night at Union Hall, and that's going to be at 10 p.m. as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Uh, If you go to the Brooklyn Podcast Festival website or the Union Hall website, we are on both of them, and we would absolutely love to see you there. We have... Some really great guests, and we're going to be doing uh, some uh, fun, some fun games, some fun games. <laughs> yeah, and it, uh, it'd be really good to meet you all in person. Um, yeah, so please, please come, come to that if you live in Brooklyn. I know that we have uh, listeners all over the country, and in that case, uh, please fly to Brooklyn. Please fly to the Greater New York City area to we, come to our show. Yes. We are uh, eco-socialists until it comes to uh, getting on a plane to see get us. Get on a... Pri- you know what? I'm going to say it. Get on a private jet. Come fly to see us. There personally. Was, there was this uh, little test that was uh, going around left, left Twitter. Um, and it was uh, testing what kind of uh, leftist values you have. And I did not know this, but I am an eco-Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> i had no idea i mean i could have told you that in retrospect it makes sense i do have an eco marxist personality absolutely i've just got eco marxist vibes really you, uh i mean yeah you have you've done an ayahuasca ceremony is that really i feel like that's, that's eco marxist i feel like that's just straight up wine mom as the <laughs> as our Brittany brothers like no, to call it that's no, that's too. No, those are the coolest wine moms ever. I don't know any wine moms who are doing ayahuasca. The ones without kids, I guess. That's true. Yeah, you can be a wine mom without kids. I hope. I hope so. I'm gonna do it. So, uh, speaking of wine moms, should we get into uh, the club momentum? Oh my god, should we get into the dumbest week on in the internet in a while? Oh God! I okay. So I took a a break from Twitter for, as I am wont to do for five whole days, and I came back, and the first thing that I saw was the New York Times endorsement. It's a pretty dumb thing to see when you come back from a social media break. I couldn't believe it, and I well, I could no, that's not true. I absolutely could believe it. It's the dumbest thing. I. Okay. Would you say you hated to see it? I hated to see it. Uh, The New York Times, in a stunning turn of events, uh, decided to endorse both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, Okay, the entire point of an endorsement, obviously, is one candidate. So that's already stupid. But then I read the op-ed that accompanies the endorsement and it's even dumber i just i kate 
you go first because I'm too upset. <laughs> so here's okay. So I've thought about why they may have done this, and here's where I'm at with it. So we know that they definitely didn't want to endorse Bernie Sanders for obvious yes. reasons. He got exactly one vote out of like 20, I think. I think that what's going on is, you know, the New York Times definitely knows that the culture is headed in a certain direction um, that there, you know, there are a lot of people who do want to vote for a progressive candidate um, and that Elizabeth Warren maybe the best way to like stave off uh, a Sanders presidency. However, she's way too much to the left for them as well. So they wanted yeah. to kind of like cut it. With this is maybe Klobuchar. This is exact. I'm, I was like, when I saw the breakdown of the votes, um, so Elizabeth Warren got eight votes. Amy Klobuchar got seven. I was shocked that Warren got eight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in any other year, they would have just given her the endorsement, but they... Klobuchar, you mean? No, uh, Warren, but because she got the most votes. But they, yeah, even she is too far to the left yeah. for them. And some of the things that they said about, I mean, the whole, the opinion piece that accompanies the endorsement is bonkers. Um, basically they said, they said both the radical and the realist models warrant serious consideration. If there were ever a time to be open to new ideas, it's now. If there were ever a time to seek stability, now is it. It's like, there is no stability. There is no stability to be found, first of all. But they talk about the fact that the best ideas that have come out of the Democratic Party in the last however many years have come from the left wing of the party, not the center. And they still go on to kind of extol the virtues of Amy Klobuchar. But they say that Warren, good news for everyone, (laughs) Warren has emerged as a standard bearer for the Democratic left. That's not exactly true. The standard bearer is like the leader of the movement and I don't even know if Elizabeth Warren would call herself the standard bearer of the Democratic left. I don't think she would. And I also... It's I also obviously think, Bernie. It's obviously that Bernie is the standard... Ba- like, Bernie is the one who... Because he is a white man. He is a all, white man. And, and we need to listen to white men. We, they're the only ones we listen to, <laughs> as I have always said on this podcast. Um, and they have all the good ideas. Um, no, but it's like, he's the one who is the reason why we're even talking about so many of these ideas in the first place that are like now household name ideas. Medicare for all. Yeah, Medicare for all. Free college. Paid family leave. Like all of these, uh, raising the minimum wage. Uh, But okay, so one of the things that bothered me, it was so weird to see this. And, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of, a lot of time, uh, you know, coming to to elizabeth warren's defense over and i don't need to like defend her on on here but the one thing that really pissed me off about this is they said the word rigged feels less bombastic than rooted and informed assessment of what the nation needs to do to reassert its historic ideals like fairness generosity and equality so basically they're saying when when elizabeth warren says rigged it sounds better than when Bernie says it, which is just fucking absurd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- there's this kind of benevolent sexism in thinking that women will fix things by virtue of our 
gender. I actually think it's so, I think the whole opinion piece that accompanies this endorsement is wildly condescending. It is. And it's also like, it's like, let the moms take care of it. Yeah. It, it really is wildly condescending. And it's also like, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, like they don't really have much in common except for the fact that they are white women, <laughs> white women. I mean, you know, there's a lot of leftists that would say, um, well, they're both imperialists. OK, fair enough. But, you know, on the scale of U.S. politics, they're they're not that close together. No. And this very much reminds me of when I get like a booking message for a comedy show that says we need a girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah it is kind of a I don't know. I mean, it, it's just it's I know they uh, probably were trying to get feminism points, but there's something that feels incredibly sexist I, about it. To I me. mean, I think it's going to, first of all, I think it's going to hurt both of them more than it helps them. Yeah. I mean, well, they didn't, well, first of all, there's nothing that could hurt Amy Klobuchar because I mean, she's, yeah, she's not a thing. She's polling so but low. It certainly doesn't help Elizabeth Warren. No. And uh, this is what is so frustrating to me about this. Look, the New York Times endorsement is ultimately useless. Like, who cares? Even though they are, like, the nation's most famous newspaper, they historically pick a lot of losers. <laughs> Hillary, Kerry. <laughs> they endorsed McCain in uh, in the, the GOP primary in 08. Oh, my gosh. Um, but the issue that I have here is... Is there was no need to pick one from the left and one from the center. Well, they the thing is, is they know that Klobuchar is not going to win, and no. also it would be, I think, very unlikely that Warren would at this point. So I, I think that this is really just kind of a, a ploy to to make sure that out of Bernie and Biden that it goes to Biden. But it's well, I, I will say that it's hugely. It, it, I think it's. I think it is really saying something that they didn't endorse Biden at all. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's notable just for like how the degree to which the Biden campaign has not been able to rack up endorsements, even from like hardcore establishment entities like the New York Times. I yeah, I definitely see. I think it's what, embarrassing for him is what it, I'm saying. It is embarrassing for him. But I also think that, you know. The establishment knows that Biden's support is from old people. And, you know, I think, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just think that their main concern here is anybody but Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. The problem, the problem that I have again with, with this framing is first of all, I want to say one thing about what they said uh, about Klobuchar. Um, Oh, also they, one thing I want to mention, they said that they hope Andrew Yang enters New York politics. And I just want to say a resounding fuck you. <laughs> Although, okay, I do, I do think that, uh, I, I do think that Yang said one good thing. I saw one good clip of Yang. Um, and, you know, I'm, don't worry, I'm not joining the Yang gang. Um, but, you know, he was talking about the ways that Obama failed. And I feel like that is, you know, still somewhat taboo among our liberal friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I mean, Kamala did that with like the deportations and 
it's like I, I think that there's a lot of people who do, who have rightly taken a swing at uh, at the Obama administration. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I just you know I do see, I I do see a lot of uh you know especially Gen X kind of centrist people being <laughs> like, how dare you talk about Obama that way? Um, they so they go on to call uh, Klobuchar the standard bearer of the Democratic Center, which is also Klobuchar. <laughs> not true um and the one thing that is particularly bonkers about this op-ed is <laughs> they talk they mention the reports that klobuchar was abusive to her staff but not in the way i expected they said reports of how senator klobuchar treats her staff give us pause they raise serious questions about her ability to attract and hire talented people. <laughs> oh my god, that's what? so it's very the fuck? It's very sick. Yeah, I feel like this year has been a uh, not this year. I they mean, don't give you pause that she's abusive. <laughs> yeah, it, this is the, this kind of reminded me of um I was going to say not like this year but you know the past uh, uh 12 months or so. I feel like we have just seen a lot of uh very weird feminist defenses like um reminds me of like katie hill well like why shouldn't a woman also be allowed to uh sleep with people who work for her i stand with katie hill on <laughs> all right i i don't i don't think that you should sleep with someone who works for you no and i I, I'm so, I would think i that just that would i be just a, made it i just made a, yeah. a silly joke no i understand but i would think that that would be the mainstream <laughs> feminist discourse around it but you know there were a bunch of people that were like you know a woman should be allowed to do this if men can. Katie Hill did nothing wrong. And I found a lot of similar discourse around Klobuchar and the staff abuse. I saw a lot of feminist takes that were like, well, people wouldn't be this hard on a man who was abusing his staff. Okay, sure. But like, what what a fucking weird ass feminist hill to die on of like, yeah, women should get to (laughs) abuse people too. It's very sick in my opinion yeah i and, mean and it's also just like peak liberal feminism to focus on defending one person's terrible actions and not instead of like dismantling the system instead of dismantling yeah. the system or even if you want to strike a midpoint just siding with the people who work for amy klobuchar yeah i mean oh my and also it's just like again peak kind of new york times siding with the boss at all cost instead Absolute. of the workers yeah oh my, I, and in such an extreme way yeah i don't know i mean it's so stupid i don't know klobuchar is so uh, the thing that really bothers me about this is that everyone to the right of warren is getting more conservative as this primary goes on people forget that mayor pete did not start as conservative as where he has currently ended up in like he definitely wasn't uh you know one of the further left uh candidates at all but he has moved rapidly towards the right or towards the center rather yeah and i would argue elizabeth warren has moved a a little to the right as well okay i mean but like everyone to the right of warren is like running towards the center in a like the you know the Pete Buttigieg's of the world, uh, Biden, Klobuchar, they're all doubling down on how, quote, unrealistic Medicare for all is and really selling us nothing. They're selling us an 
they're selling us exactly what we got with Hillary, essentially, which is like a better alternative to Trump, but like at what cost? <laughs> like here is exactly what you were saying. Um, when they're talking about Elizabeth Warren, they say, we worry about I- ideological rigidity and overreach, and we'd certainly push back on specific policy proposals like nationalizing health insurance or decriminalizing the border. You know, these are kind of mainstream ideas at this point, and it's yeah. like, you know, I mean, the New York Times has expressly stated that they are a capitalist publication, but yeah. that is their value system, so... I, you know, I guess we can't really be surprised that the New York Times sucks, but uh, they, but man, they really do suck. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, they are really harping on the idea that Bernie is just the left's version of Trump. Um, they say, uh, then there's how Sanders uh, approaches politics. He boasts that compromise is anathema to him. Only his prescriptions can be the right ones, even though most are overly rigid, untested, and divisive. Fuck off. Three years into the Trump administration, we see little advantage to exchanging one overpromising, divisive figure in Washington for another. That is such garbage to draw a parallel there. And honestly, I think it's there is just something so deeply naive about it because we do need an answer for the right machine in this country. And no, obviously uh, Bernie is not like Trump and he in any way, in any... Yeah, his ideas are actually the most opposite of Trump's (laughs) compared to anyone running. And I saw a recent poll that the there's a out of all the candidates running, there's the the least like crossover support between Bernie and Trump this time. Like, oh wow, yeah, Pete has the most, unsurprisingly. Okay, so this is what so this is another thing that's really annoying. Pete's appeal to Republicans is seen as a strength, whereas Bernie's. Uh, appeal in red states is seen as a liability yeah i mean fuck off (laughs) people you'll see this smear a lot in the media they've talked about this on citations needed too which you know nima was on our show and he's so cool Um, but but, uh basically how publications centrist publications or um cable news will uh use the word populism to just really equate like left and right you know just like oh well it's all people yelling so uh there's no difference it doesn't matter what they're yelling about i mean it's it's you know basically they're just dismissing the idea that uh enthusiasm can be anything other than uh negative and you know I, i i don't know as a way of kind of dismissing left ideas yeah i mean it's very obvious that like yeah you can't just ascribe a lot of people yelling angrily as just a as making bernie and trump the same because obviously this goes without saying but like trump has directed that anger towards people of color and bernie has rightly directed that anger at the incredibly broken capitalist system that we live and suffer in yeah absolutely i you know um another thing this week that feels very relevant to mention today uh, on Martin Luther King Day when we're recording is uh, how much pushback Bernie Sanders got when he expressed that um, 
capitalism and racism were connected. We actually got to talk a lot about that in the interview with uh, Jackie Fielder, which we have coming up next. But um, that was a key tenant of Martin Luther King's belief system. And, you know, we're definitely not trying to be like the white women uh, making Martin Luther King Day about ourselves and what what we believe or anything like that. But I, I do think it's worth noting like the way that um, liberal media, I mean, and of course, conservative media too, has sanitized his oh, yeah. legacy, whitewashed it. I mean, he was... Uh, I mean, you have like Jeff Sessions tweeting out like the most benign MLK quotes. When, yeah. Like, Kellyanne her, Conway today was saying yeah. that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. would not have supported impeachment. I love that. Yeah. Well, and then he just... You know, he gets used as this like um, his legacy is falsely represented to act as a a tool to kind of convey the idea that uh, the main way uh, like when you're um, trying to fight racism, that you know the main thing is to just uh, be very nice to everybody. Uh, Definitely don't do violence. uh, Don't resist, you know don't make anyone mad and, and that's not really what he believed no. at all just wanted to kind of read like a, a couple quotes of his um when he was uh talking about this um capitalism has brought about a system that takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes and this is from his uh 1952 letter um to uh coretta scott king um he also said uh, in a Riverside in the Riverside Church speech, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So, you know, I mean, he was uh, not only against capitalism I mean, he was a democratic socialist, but it, it, he also spoke on um, the evils of u.s empire militarism i I mean it's just well he didn't have anything in common with these people who are trying to sanitize his legacy yeah and i mean the fact that like someone like jeff sessions is tweeting about him is as egregious as the fbi tweeting about him i mean the reason in particular why jeff sessions is it's like as disgusting and hypocritical that he would say anything on martin luther king day is that in 1986 coretta scott king wrote a letter opposing his uh nomination to the federal courts like because he's so racist <laughs> yeah absolutely every i don't know but yeah i mean did, i don't even know if democratic socialism even like as we know it today even existed when martin luther king was um kind of at his most no it did he said america must move toward a democratic socialism that's a quote from him Oh, I, I just mean like the Democrat, like... Oh, the, like the, DSA? Yeah. No, DSA did not. <laughs> You're right. He was Martin Luther King, uh, self-radicalized while listening to Chapo Trap House. Chapo Trap House. <laughs> Martin Luther King, famously part of Rose Emoji Twitter. Um, yeah. No, I... <laughs> he actually started the Lion Liz hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's incredibly obvious to me how much and how often he connected race and class and militarism and all of these things that we're still talking about today. And he was, I mean, what he said was radical and to say, to see it be 
just kind of put through this machine and have this like watered down kumbaya message ascribed to him is really sad because it wasn't what he was he constantly was talking about poverty and being released from the oppression of the system (laughs) yeah i mean it's not just sad i think it's really sinister because yeah like not only are they disrespecting his legacy and getting it wrong they're actively using his legacy to convey in schools like the idea that um resistance should never be not not just not violent that it shouldn't even be like rude you yeah. know but it's just all about like holding hands and getting along i'm i don't know it's, it's just, like a wells fargo float at pride it's just yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh you know please again um come see us at union hall this saturday night we're so excited about our show and up next we have an interview with jackie fielder um a really cool woman running for for California State Senate. Um, Even if you don't live in California, this is still a really great interview. We talked about public banking. Um, Jackie is an indigenous woman. We talked about... um, the some of the issues facing uh, indigenous people in the u.s today uh we even talked about uh elizabeth warren um we talked about uh the uh moms for housing movement in oakland and oh my god their work the work that they if you have not checked out their work it is it's amazing and it's heartbreaking and it's just it's so moving to watch yeah jack jackie's really really cool um so you know please listen to this interview uh i think you'll really like her throw her campaign a few bucks and uh we'll see you on saturday thank you hello and welcome back to reply guys uh it's just me kate here for this interview uh i'm sitting down with jackie fielder who is running for state senate in california how are you jackie i'm doing well how are you good and uh you live here in san francisco right yes i live in the mission district oh nice okay so let me start with a question uh that i totally know the answer to for sure (laughs) definitely i know uh what do you do when you're in the state senate so in the state senate in california um they basically decide the budget in conjunction with the assembly and the governor and they pass laws that have to also get approved by the assembly and signed by the governor um that affect everything from the quality of our water to housing prices to uh, how much money public education gets so it's a very important seat. And as someone who has lived in California their whole life um, and has been watching the flow of money from special interests into the capital, I'm really concerned about how we're ever going to be able to address a lot of our crises if we don't uh, target Sacramento. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, seems like San Francisco has been like a, a breeding ground for politicians that have gone on to uh, serve the the state at large, uh, usually in in a not great way, like uh, Gavin Newsom, okay, <laughs> or maybe like Kamala. But uh, so, yeah, what makes San Francisco unique? Why do you think we see so many people coming out of San Francisco politics? It's absolutely a Democratic Party powerhouse. You know, we have Pelosi, and as you said, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, and it's it's essentially the capital of. The way that I see it, it's the capital of the Democratic Party on the West Coast, at least. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It definitely does seem like that. Um, 
What made you want to run for office? I was not planning on it. I am 25. I oh my god! P- please never say that again. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to know about that. Uh, I wish you the best. But I have no desire to know your age. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I've been organizing for a public bank here for the past few years. I am a lecturer at SF State in the College of Ethnic Studies. I um. I don't know. I studied public policy as an undergrad at Stanford, and I also uh, got my master's in sociology. But I have been around policymaking largely from the point of organizing and activism i um ironically i found out last year that i come from a long line of uh bureaucrats especially on the indian side so i'm hidatsa and tukata lakota but i i have a hard time just simply following orders and i i have a lot of um impatience when it comes to the issues that I see around us, whether that's homelessness or climate change or um, especially um, indigenous rights and racial justice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I have to ask, uh, as an indigenous woman, are you related to Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> <laughs> she is uh, not at all related that I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I honestly, it's really unfortunate when when people want to claim that because indigenous identity is such a a personal journey for a lot of people. And, you know, for me, it went back to Standing Rock and I grew up in Long Beach, California for up until I was 18. Um, It was only until I got to college that I started learning about American studies and the American Indian movement and occupation of Alcatraz and the residential boarding schools. And I started to connect the dots and realize like my family's history is um, intimately entwined with federal policy that's you know explicitly racist and you know all the all the bad things, but also comes with a lot of resilience and understanding how I'm able to be alive in 2020 as an indigenous woman. So you know, um, I think it's really inspiring to see youth, uh, indigenous youth really who started the no dapple movement and who have carried on the conversation uh as far as climate change and standing up for our earth against corporate interests but you know someone like elizabeth warren who's who's claiming indigeneity is uh really concerning and it certainly does not negate anyone's uh you know white privilege when it comes to existing in the world um there can definitely be both you mentioned uh no dapple. Did you go to the encampment and protest at Standing Rock? No. I mean, I, I went for a day to drop off some donations. And the time that I spent there will always be really special and personal to me. But honestly, it wasn't until I came back that I actually started to really throw down for the cause. I, Being in San Francisco, I had been focused on police policies and just honestly nerds, nerding out about Uh, police policies at the local and state and national levels um, because Black Lives Matter took off when I was a sophomore in college. And I saw how... That was like 2014. Exactly. And I saw how connected, you know, oppression on Black people was connected to uh, police oppression on Indigenous people. And I wanted to uh, follow the money. Really, who, in answer, who benefits from this kind of violence? Um, As we know now private prisons fossil fuel companies both benefit from that violence 
And the common denominator between them are Wall Street banks. And so I started the San Francisco Defund Dapple Coalition, which slowly turned into the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition. That is so interesting. There's kind of a lot that you just said there. So I kind of want to break it down uh, to help our listeners uh, understand it also so that I can understand what's yeah. going on. Okay, so what um, what do you think that most people don't understand about the connection between Wall Street and Standing Rock? Yeah, so um, in order to build these gigantic fossil fuel projects, whether that's a refinery or an oil pipeline like the Dakota Access Pipeline, you need capital. And often the only financial institutions that can provide something crazy like three to six billion dollars in capital um, are Wall Street banks. And so there is a huge movement to divest from DAPL. Um, and it, it really captured people to divest their individual bank accounts, uh, look into trading their pensions or their home mortgages or their nonprofits or their churches, uh, you know, bank accounts to other uh, banks such as credit unions and smaller banks. As far as uh, locally, what I saw was, and a lot of people saw in Seattle and across the country, was that there are these larger sums of money that um, are are pretty much handled by Wall Street banks. All the Wall Street banks you can think of, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, even banks in Europe and Canada, they manage uh, a lot of our investments at the local level. So in San Francisco, uh, we have a $12 billion pooled investment fund. So that's all the money that we collect from tax revenue, sales tax, business tax, property tax, whatever. And when we're not using it, because we don't need all of that in one day, it, it goes to banks so that they can invest for us and of course, they're only giving us back a crumb of whatever they, they earn with our own money. Yeah. I was thinking about something when you were talking about that. I was thinking about Bernie Sanders this week has been getting a lot of criticism from liberals, Warren surrogates, about for saying... Uh, for focusing on economic justice and for talking about um, economic like ways to approach racial justice and he always gets a lot of blowback whenever he does this um i remember in 2016 hillary clinton said breaking up the big banks is not going to end racism and of course like on one level that's true but one thing that really strikes me about what you're saying is breaking up the big banks uh, would help with some <laughs> with some racism yeah yeah absolutely i mean uh racism needs to have that element of structural power in order to be considered racism. I mean, then we get into talking about reverse racism and why that is not a thing. But anyway, it's not a thing. You know, capital capital is at this point in time and, you know, arguably since um, settler colonization has been the ultimate tool for um, upholding a racist uh, capitalist structure in, in the United States. Yeah, it seems like the people who say that a lot of the time are doing it kind of cynically. I mean, it it seems like by kind of taking out, I, I don't know. I, I was somebody who in 2016 bought into this argument to, it, on some level that like, uh, you know, economic justice and racial justice are separate things. But it, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like 
a lot of your work is about uh, social justice through confronting capital. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Because we know that without capital, you know, there would be less of a reason to uphold um, these racist systems. And of course, um, even going back to, for example, slavery and indentured servitude, you know, we learn that um, indentured servitude was an institution that, you know, kind of a double-edged sword, but differentiated working class, if you want to call it that, um, white settlers from um, from black people brought over here by slave ships. Um, and it's it's, you know, historically been a way for the ruling class to um, keep working class people divided, which we see now. Too. Which is exactly what Bernie Sanders was saying, but people got so mad about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about public banks. For people who might not be familiar with the concept of a public bank, could you just give like a quick overview of what it is? Yeah. Um, public banking is essentially a public financing option for local government agencies or state government agencies. There is one public bank institution in the continental United States, and that is the Bank of North Dakota. You know, the progressive state of North Dakota. Yeah. Um, they uh, actually in the past 20 years have been able to garner $1 billion in profits that goes right back to their general fund. Um, public banking has absolutely been a movement around for um, a very long time. And it got its most recent, I think, fuel and fodder from the Occupy movement and, of course, most recently, the No Dakota Access Pipeline movement. Um, Trinity Tran in L.A. has been an amazing leader for our movement here in California. And uh, the California Public Banking Alliance got the Public Banking Act AB 857 passed this past year um, in the state legislature. And once it was signed by the governor... L.A., San Francisco, and a lot of other cities got to work immediately on a pathway for our respective cities to be able to apply for a public banking license. So in California, before this particular act, there was only two different licenses that any bank could apply for, and that was a credit union license or a regular commercial banking license. Public banks fit neither description because they are owned by the public. They have, uh, they're supposed to have public serving mission statements and ideally a set of principles to guide the financing. Um, essentially, it's 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 a banking institution whose shareholders, in theory, should be the public um, that that owns it, and it should not serve to maximize profit for private interests, but to serve the public good. Um, credit unions are not-for-profit institutions that are owned by the shareholders, but they're not publicly owned by a local government agency or any state agency and then commercial banking you know the regular wall streets and other smaller banks yeah Yeah, exactly yeah um so let's say you're elected to the california state senate will you be working on uh expanding public banking in any way will that be an issue that you continue to focus on yeah, so it's it's definitely part of it. Um, I'm really championing uh, real solutions around affordable housing that get to the root cause, which I think is this idea of 
of being able to commodify housing. In my view, it should be a human right. Um, I agree. We're we're also championing uh, a Green New Deal for California and a package of economic justice initiatives. There is so much more to our platform that we will hope to roll out. I mean, in California, there's... um, we have a very high immigrant population and documented people population. We have um, LGBTQI and A plus um, population. Obviously in San Francisco, this is the capital for, for queer people, non-binary people and trans people. Um, we also have, there's just a lot to talk about <laughs> in the state Senate. Um, for me, those three big ones are are my big focus. Let's start with housing. Um- what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people have about how to make housing more affordable? Yeah. So here in California, we have the fifth largest economy in the world. And I also recently saw that we have not a quarter, as I've been saying, but a half of the entire unhoused population of the country. Um San Francisco especially is grappling with this and Fox News every once and again comes in and and does a a really horrendous anti-homeless piece on us. But it's disgusting. It is. And um, obviously they're not interested in helping us out. Um, The thing is, we're we've been experiencing like so many other places around the country disinvestment from the federal level going back to the 70s and the 80s. Um, We I think we. So far, because Sacramento, our capital, has been captured by real estate interests and corporate landlord interests, and especially most recently, big tech interests, um, we have been, uh, at least as far as elected officials, um, catering to the interests of you know, the powerful and wealthy and not everyday working class people who are paying way more than 30% of their income to be able to live in their communities and live near their families and their work. Obviously, in San Francisco, that's becoming less and less of a thing as people are pushed out to uh, across the Bay and have to commute an hour and a half on either unreliable, unsafe, um, slow transportation or using their cars. Um, I think the biggest misconception is that the market is going to save us. As we found out in 2008, it's absolutely not. And we are a fool for continuing to think that they're going to somehow all of a sudden, I don't know, grow a heart and start building for for extremely low and very low and low income people, even moderate income people. We have, as as a lot of politicians in this state point to a quote unquote shortage and they say, we need to build our way out. We need just, just need to build at all levels. And of course, we know that this is a form of trickle-down economics, um, really championed by the likes of Ronald Reagan and Ben Carson. And we know that that just doesn't work. Studies have shown it doesn't work. Um, why don't we just build affordable housing? Um, <clears throat> and so we're going to be championing uh, unprecedented investments in taking units off of the speculative market entirely, as well as subsidizing the uh, public and nonprofit construction of affordable housing units. This is not going to solve everything, but if it's a real crisis, why aren't we committing real crisis money into the problem? 
let's say we live in utopia and California up and down has democratic socialists in office bernie sanders is president <laughs> what like, how do we solve the problem of homelessness in in or how do we solve the problem of homelessness and unaffordable housing like let's say there's no political blockers what does the solution look like yeah i think it looks like decommodifying housing um i think that looks like the the government being able to take over especially vacant units um off of the speculative market entirely and giving that over to people who need it most. I think we need to fight for a society that, uh, in which homelessness is rare and is very short lived, um, where people are not put into a temporary shelter and then kicked out um, after 90 days or so, or are kicked out for mental health issues that they really need help with. Yeah. Um, and we're not, we're not committing what we should be in California to those issues. Yeah, I think that every liberal person in San Francisco has pretty much uh, the same opinion on housing, which is like what uh, I, I just find that people here keep repeating the same statement. Oh, you know, it's because, you know, Ronald Reagan shut down uh, mental health facilities in the 80s. And people just say that. But like there's never like there hasn't been any time since the 80s or something yeah. like, like there was like never exactly yeah it's it's, it's pretty ridiculous um well now instead of instead of ronald reagan the problem is on trump and yeah. so people i mean elected officials say ah we we need help from the federal government and trump's not providing it and they point the finger at him when in fact we have 157 billionaires in california we have the fifth largest economy in the world all of the tech companies that you know are raising our GDP, um, they are not paying their fair share. And it's also the reason why we are at the bottom, uh, among the bottom in the nation in per pupil spending for public schools. Let's talk for a second about schools. Is that all right? Yes. So absolutely. what are some democratic socialist solutions to education in california yeah so same thing that's happening with housing as far as commodification of this basic human right is happening with education um because we've seen a disinvestment in education over the decades uh charter schools are coming into the picture kind of uh positing themselves as the solution and of course you know from betsy devos to other billionaires like the waltons pouring um, millions into charter school associations. We have one in particular that has actually given an award to my opponent, the current state senator, for being legislator of the year. Um, we know very well that the privatization of education means that low-income students who um, disproportionately are Black, Indigenous, uh, Pacific Islander, and Southeast Asian students that means that they get less of an opportunity to basically actualize their own lives. And in California, um, we just had one of the biggest strikes for, for educators and school employees uh, from Oakland to Los Angeles. It was this Red for Ed campaign uh, for, for keeping teacher wages um, a little bit with pace. But even now, in California, we are absolutely not paying our educators or school employees as they should be. Um, and in, like I said, in one of the richest, honestly, uh, 
could be countries in the world uh, in California, that's absolutely unacceptable. I agree. It's completely unacceptable. Who are like who and what are the biggest obstacles to fixing the education system? Honestly, I think just um, our own um, our own damn selves. We actually in this year, we have a, a ballot measure um, that people are collecting signatures for specifically educators and organizers who care about schools and public schools and keeping them public. We have what's called Schools and Communities First, which is aimed at reforming Prop 13. And if you don't know, um, Prop 13 was basically implemented in the 70s to um, keep property taxes um, and commercial property taxes as low as possible. Of course, this really screwed over public schools who um, depended on a lot of that. And so um, at least for San Francisco, it would mean something like 800 million more per year into public schools. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is a ton of money. And it's and it's honestly getting us back to where we need to be. It's not an extra uh, thing that we're just doing because it's the right time. It has been desperately needed for decades. And I can attest to that because I went to public schools from grades four through 12. I went to a school in Long Beach, Lakewood, um, that had 4,000 students. And I kid you not, we had pink powdered soap and we're constantly running out of toilet paper. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 just, you would not send your kid to a school like that. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing is, is like a lot of even, you know, people who probably vote um, along... Uh, liberal progressive lines don't send their kids to public school and so it seems like the problem just keeps kind of spiraling exactly and we know putting kids in private schools and charter schools is you know that much less um funding for public schools yeah wow what a happy world we live in (laughs) it's great okay so um you obviously have a lot of amazing ideas and I think one thing that people are sort of wondering about now, not, you know, just with your campaign, but in general is like, how does a democratic socialist get any of their agenda enacted when so many people are, uh, when there's so many corporate backed Democrats, even in a blue state like California, like how do you actually put political pressure on corporate back Democrats to get them to, you know, actually give a fuck about what's happening to their constituents. Yeah, absolutely. And it's basically a matter of organizing. Honestly, that's my background. And in 2018, we had a ballot measure by the Police Officers Association for them to write their own taser policy. And uh, this policy is essentially a policy that should be written by the police commission, which is much more accountable to the public. It's publicly appointed. Um, it's the usual process for things. But our SF Police Officers Association has been known for being out of pocket. And especially going back to 2016 and their racist tech scandal, they were proven by this blue ribbon. What was the racist tech scandal? Just really quick for yeah, listeners it, who may not be familiar. Sure. Um, it was It was discovered that a lot of um officers had been engaging in just homophobic explicitly racist just 
horrendous talk amongst them and it wasn't some offshoot of the of the department it was uh entirely endemic and culturally okay for them to do that um so they tried to write their own use of force policy and put it on the ballot for san francisco voters and the democratic socialists of america san francisco um recruited me to manage the campaign called no on prop h and we got a basically a very diverse coalition of groups uh, around the city to back the campaign and we were outspent five to one and we defeated this police ballot measure by getting more than 60 percent of the electorate to agree with us damn good job (laughs) and then and then of course uh you know organizing gets the goods same thing happened in 2019 when the California Public Banking Alliance, of which the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition is a proud member, uh, organized people, public bank advocates across the state and had lobby days in Sacramento, wrote letters and encouraged other groups to sign on. Um, again, Trinity Tran, huge leader in that. And we basically went up against the most powerful lobby in the world and won. Amazing. That's how you get, get stuff done. One thing that your overview of this situation reminded me of is just like how many people st- still think that uh, socialism is for white bros. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw a piece in like Time about that today. And uh, yeah, it just, I think, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, like what policing could maybe look like with democratic socialists in office it seems like that's an issue you feel really passionate about yeah absolutely i um was really galvanized obviously by black lives matter and you know mike brown so many of the different names but um locally oscar grant who was killed on january 1st 2009 by bart police that was kind of the bay area's big moment Um, Obviously, it was a moment nationally, too, but here it was a real testament to, you know, police impunity. I think that we need to start responding to crises um, by putting social workers in the position of where police officers are right now. Um, I also want to talk about how um, we are responding to homelessness with increased uh, police presence and in California, that's that's a that's been an ongoing um, discussion and certainly catalyzed by the recent Moms for Housing movement coming out of Oakland, in which black moms who are on the verge of homelessness or have been experiencing it this year um, took over a vacant house. And uh, I believe in West Oakland, which has been a, a place for serious gentrification and displacement and the corporate landlord essentially was able to get the city's support and the county's support, Alameda County Sheriff, um, to send militarized police enforcement to this house to evict the moms. Um, this Sucks. was this just happened recently. Disgusting. Yeah. And and what I think needs to happen is um, we need to divest from police and the carceral system to address what I see as issues of. Uh, investments in mental health services, substance abuse services, housing, health care and education. Um, So many people in prison themselves have experienced violence and 
have traumatic life circumstances. And we know that most of the people in prison right now haven't even been charged uh, or found guilty yet. So we need to talk about investing in things that actually do get to the root problem, which uh, is so many factors in a person's life. I completely agree. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, can we, let's, let's talk some shit. I don't have to, uh, you don't have to use that phrase cause I know you're running for office, but let's <laughs> talk some shit about your opponent. Uh, perhaps, you know, you can phrase it as, uh, why you think it's important to, <laughs> to beat him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So most recently he's just shown that he has not been with his constituents. In 2018, that proposition that I mentioned about the police union wanting to write their own use of force policy, he sided with the Republican Party and the police union. And As we see that. a lot of the time. Yes. And he is well, um, well funded by the Police Officers Association here. And as is very common in California politics, um, there are other police officers associations or the correctional, you know, the correctional employees association um and so many others he also like i said um he was endowed with an award from the charter school association of california and they uh, awarded him as legislator of the year in 2018 oh yay <laughs> kind of um, reminds me of when uh deval patrick won the deval patrick innovation <laughs> award <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly um he benefited from half a million dollars of uh charter school advocates money um in his 2016 election and uh last year he opposed a small tax on the wealthiest corporations in san francisco to fund supportive housing and mental health services to address the crisis of homelessness here. Um, he sided with corporations like Twitter and Square and, you know, Jack, billionaire, um, against this very reasonable uh, policy that wouldn't even scratch the surface of uh, undoing the damage of the Trump tax cuts for corporations. Yes, well, I very much hope that you unseat him. Um, earlier today, we were chatting a little bit before the interview about uh, the Green New Deal for California. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, how it would differ from uh, a national Green New Deal, what it would look like if it were implemented, even if the national Green New Deal, you know, if we're still working on that, um, say more. Exactly. So as the fifth largest economy in the world, I see California as having the responsibility of leading on uh, mitigating climate change. For any elected official, we need to start with the understanding that climate change is not reversible at this point. I think it is very dangerous, as Greta has pointed out, very dangerous for elected officials to sell this idea of optimism and reversing climate change. Um, you know, it's just more what I see as corporate greenwashing, and in, in, in this case, uh, greenwashing for political gains. I think that we need to, again, as with housing, as with education, get to this idea that we are um, somehow growing our economy by uh, selling dinosaur bones and uh, not being able to uh, provide energy that we need for uh, all of our different human activities. So I want to talk about indigenous stewardship 
and giving land back to indigenous people here in California because they've had millennia to hone those practices of, um, you know, symbiosis with the, the land that they're on. For example, in California, we've been experiencing wildfires from Southern California to Northern California. I remember growing up in Southern California and, and having to go Me to too. school sometimes with, with masks. And that's becoming way more common in Northern California too. Um, as, as one of my friends who's uh, indigenous Pomo up in Northern California pointed out to me, it would be really silly for anyone to buy a house in, say, Santa Rosa, in particular parts up there, because it's known to be a corridor for fire. And that's some indigenous knowledge that has not been able to um, be implemented on any, any big scale. I also want to talk about transportation, because as we know, California has some of the worst traffic we are very heavy on it's, car culture. It's fucking unreal. I think that, yeah, it's a... Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's something that theoretically everybody should be able to get behind is public transportation. But, you know, exactly. still there's a... Still there are opponents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as, as you know, in L.A. County, it's just... Anyone will laugh in your face if you think, like, if you say, well, you need to stop and get out of your car and... Uh, you know, spend two or three hours more on public transportation. It's it's a simply matter of, of investment. Um, and we have so many leaders that have said, you know, California is leading on emissions reduction and, and whatever. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're certainly better, but our transportation emissions have not budged an inch. We need to make sure. I also want to talk about even uh, potentially a tax on private jets um because we know that if you want to cut your if you're you know someone like us who you know has the ability and privilege to fly we are a very small proportion of the of the human species that has been able to fly and has the means to do so um in california we have so many different airports um we definitely need to be talking about that but you know investing in um in transportation and and public transportation that's actually free for all um obviously it's going to be a while to get there but um we need to make sure that people especially working class people who have been displaced across the bay are able to get to their job um without having to use their car um that doesn't necessarily mean that's a an excuse to implement a regressive gas tax but i do think that we need to look at equitable uh tax structures that make sure the wealthiest um People and corporations are paying their fair share. 100% agree on that. Um, just to kind of switch gears for a little bit, you know, you mentioned that you've organized with DSA. Um, I know that the kind of like stereotype of DSA is that it's like broy and <laughs> dismisses women and people of color. Have you found that to be true? Or, uh, yeah, have you found that to be true? There's certainly pockets of that, and that's the case with any particular space. Um, I think that it's it's been certainly challenging and, and members have, some members have a long way to go than others, but a lot of us are part of different, just different movements or different organizations. And um, at least in San Francisco, I think that we have a really, um, a really we have over a thousand members and obviously a much smaller proportion of those people are, are involved on a monthly basis, but we are a part of 
I know the people that I'm close to in DSASF are part of so many different projects around the city. I, for myself, have been hyper-focused on getting a public bank and working with um, people hurt first and worst by Wall Street and making that happen. And that requires spending a lot of time outside of DSA. Yeah. Um, I know people who are working with um, black members in the Bayview and, uh, you know, black leaders who have been trying to keep um, shelters open for unhoused people and uh, also you know, brilliant black leaders in the Bayview on cleaning up the shipyard, which has been uh, a definite example of environmental racism in our city. Um, There are DSA members that have also been helping with that measure that I told you about earlier about the small tax on the biggest corporations. And obviously, most recently, we have um, a democratic socialist on the board of supervisors. His name is Dean Preston. And it's only his second week in office. And he's already been talking about um, social housing and getting rent control for this particular um, building called Midtown and those those residents he's been working with for years as a tenant's rights attorney. And he's also talking about free dental health for people in San Francisco. Um, We're really excited to see what he's been able to do um, just in his two weeks. And we know that he will absolutely champion and stand by our principles. Yeah, it's super cool to see how many young not, and not just young even older uh democratic socialists are getting elected to office running for office we've had some on our show but it's just it's really exciting i've never uh, I, I didn't think in 2015 that this was possible do you feel optimistic about the future of uh, democratic socialism and the progressive movement i do and i think it's because people are realizing that we can make wins and gains on very specific issues, whether that's Medicare for all or public banking. And they're not explicitly democratic socialists, but they are part and parcel of a democratic socialist program. And I think that as long as we're still able to speak to regular working class people's needs, whether that's reliable transportation, whether that's free dental health, whether that's access to credit, in the form of public banking, or whether that's um, rent control and tenant protections. As long as we're able to speak to working class people who don't know what democratic socialism is, who don't really care for the labels, I think we'll be able to expand um, this idea that um, our basic human necessities should be commodified. What do you what would you like to see happen with big tech? Because that's a big question, I think, that's going to be on everyone's mind, uh, given that we're here in San Francisco. Like um, Elizabeth Warren has talked about breaking up Facebook. Would you support breaking up Facebook, Google, Twitter? So I uh, this is coming out in a long time and there's still a lot of things to figure out. But I want to talk about transparency into big tech companies like Facebook and uh, so many other platforms that really mine our data, which should belong to us, but because we're so, obviously we're not going to read the terms and conditions. And we are addicted to Twitter and Facebook. And, and that's where and our movements Instagram. are. Yeah, yeah, no, that's totally true. I mean, <laughs> it's like for as much as it's easy to, I mean, I, I hate Twitter, but I mean, I also wouldn't know 
about leftist news without it and we would yeah. not be able to get our supply of memes yeah. i mean i wouldn't i yeah. would on twitter for that I, I, I would never have known that smooth bernie was a thing <laughs> without twitter <laughs> yeah and you know um it's unfortunate that these are our only options but i want to talk about transparency and what are they how the heck is it that i talked to my friend about this particular brand of i don't know sauerkraut and then it shows up six hours later on my feed an ad for this particular sauerkraut it's fucked up <laughs> it's really fucked up and you know they've been saying oh that's just the that's just the the uh, precision of the algorithm it just shows you how good our algorithm is absolutely we're not listening there's no way um i don't know but i think that we need more transparency into how our data is being used what data is being used to market to us um, we also need to learn as far as ride shares, um, you know, how many workers they have, what they're getting paid. Um, not very much. Exactly. I used to do it. Yeah. It is yep. less than minimum wage almost exactly. all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are your, your accident rates? What are you doing about it? All of this information that they are able to keep out of the public's view. And if we have access to the, this information, we'll be better able to regulate them whatever you want to do to uh get them to stop doing as much uh, bad shit as they're doing <laughs> i completely support it <laughs> mark zuckerberg is evil um, he's down the street by the way oh right now i mean he has a house down the street oh he has a house down the street Ugh. yeah i really hate that guy <laughs> it was it's funny i lived in san francisco in yeah you know I, I lived here in the Bay Area for a long time, but like I, I really feel like there was like kind of a, a big turn that took place around 2013, 2014, when it's just like all of a sudden, like everyone I knew was getting evicted. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so glad to see that uh, there are it looks like finally some people being elected who are actually prepared to uh, address that. Right. And we're hoping that we'll be able to implement some sort of policy that gives preference to people who have been displaced and evicted, especially under the Ellis Act here in California, to return to the places Can that Can you they, say what the Ellis Act is just real yeah, quick? Yeah, the Ellis Act is basically a provision that allows landlords to evict a whole unit, a whole building of tenants for no reason so that they can jack up the rents and, you know, rent to other people. Yes. And so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just knew people were not going to know what the Ellis Act is yeah. because I, I did not know. And No, it's it gets really jargony. And that's how politicians are able to say, you know what, you, you know, young democratic socialists don't know what you're talking about, da, 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 da. When in reality, we've had so many members um, who are experts on this issue, um, like Dean Preston, uh, get elected into office. And they're doing such a phenomenally better job um at getting the things that we've actually been wanting for a long time yeah i mean I, it feels like educating people is one of the biggest challenges to accomplishing progressive policy goals it, it just feels like there's so many misconceptions mm -hmm. about like just what you know like what medicare for all would mean what a totally. green new deal would mean you know and there's just a there's like you know, a bunch of fear mongering yeah. in media. They're going to ban your private insurance. For, yeah. You know, nobody who works in uh, coal will ever have a job again. Yeah. And they'll all vote for Trump forever, even if he's not running. Yeah. Or, like, you know, so I, I guess like what have you found has been 
the best way to kind of counteract the mm-hmm. mass media narratives mm-hmm. and get people on board with some of these some of these issues that would actually greatly benefit their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a lecturer at SF State and I um, was in college not that long ago. I realized that I have a really hard time processing information if I just hear it or if I just read it. And if I, for example, draw pictures or make graphics, which is what we've been doing for the public bank for a long time, um, that helps me make sense of very dense legislation text um, and helps for my students. I teach a lot about movements, especially No Dapple and Black Lives Matter and Stonewall riots and Marsha P. Johnson, um, making those issues come to life. Because so many of us have tangible experiences of being going to the doctor and being under the assumption that we only pay the $20 copay and we're fine. And then it turns out, you know, you have several hundred other dollars that you have uh, in debt down the line. It's, yeah. At the minimum. It's fucking, it's, it's just... It's our healthcare system is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why everybody isn't 100% on board with Medicare for all, but yeah. it's probably because they haven't heard this podcast yet. <laughs> so there's so many. Once they do. There's so many acronyms. There's so many names for the different acts. In California, we have AB 857. We have um, SB da 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 and AB da 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 da. How can anyone keep up with that? When I'm working several different jobs to just keep a roof over my own personal head, I'm lucky and I don't have dependents. Um, at the end of the day, I don't want to log on to legendfo.cad.gov to see what my uh, you know, re- state representative is doing or not doing. Um, there's only so much time in the day. And so we need people in elected office who understand the pressures of existing in this particular economic system, who we can trust will be on the side of teachers and renters and students and unhoused people and indigenous people, black people, and so on. Um, and we just don't have that right now. We are we are um, teaming with career politicians who are backed by corporate interests. For folks who are interested in learning more about the movements that you referenced, are there any particular resources that you would recommend? Um, I definitely, uh, honestly, um, I've, I've been educated a lot by films and documentaries. Um, so I am not ashamed to show my class Netflix documentaries or uh, documentaries on YouTube. Specifically for the No Dapple movement, I would recommend... Black Snake Killers by Unicorn Riot. And that wasn't the name of that wasn't the name I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect Unicorn was going to be part of this answer, but I'm so stoked. At this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unicorn Riot's an amazing independent journalist um, outlet. And um, <clears throat> there are so many other documentaries out there on YouTube. Honestly, on YouTube, like Black Power Mixtape. Learn about the Black Panther Party. Um, there's there's so much out there because people especially from these more radical movements, want people to know what happened, what mistakes were made, how not to make them again. Um, And of course, just know your history, especially as an organizer. Yeah, those are great recommendations and I cannot wait to check them out. Um, Let me think. So I guess one thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, so there's a lot of conversation right now about electing women to office, which like I think is 
what I think is the thing that we should do. Absolutely. <laughs> it's part of the whole point of this podcast. But I, I also feel uh, like this idea, um, like, uh, you know, that only a person's identity matters and like the the kind of we don't need to pay a lot of attention to policies i i also feel like that's like a really toxic idea because you mm-hmm. have to look at what policies are doing i guess like you know what do you feel like is kind of like a concise explanation to people who do really want to support women and people of color in running for office but also like you don't want to convey that we have to look out for policies as well mm-hmm I think, especially being candidate now, uh, especially women of color, I um, see how someone could be really enchanted by the idea of having a lot of power when, you know, historically and situationally they haven't. And people who look like them and are from their backgrounds have not. I see how that would be very tempting, Um, especially in, in... politics from the federal level and California and even local, there's such a pressure to be able to raise money. And that often that often forces people to compromise on their values or whatever. And maybe they don't have any, maybe they're pure ambition and they, they just say, you know what? I just want to be, I just want to be president and I'm just going to take whatever money comes. And, you know, everyone's going to support me because I'm whatever this identity. Um, I think that we deserve elected officials in office who will get especially the most vulnerable and marginalized people what they need and not compromise on their values in order to get that. That is a big ask, but I think that's what we deserve as everyday people. For me, that looks like not accepting contributions from the real estate lobby or from police unions. Not that they would ever want to donate to me, but I want to make it very clear who I want to be accountable to and for me, that's it's largely been individual contributors who, on average, have donated like one hundred and twenty dollars. That's awesome that you have so many uh, individual <laughs> contributors. Um, well, hopefully there'll be some more individual contributors from this podcast. Uh, donate, reply guys, if you're out there, reply guys, reply guys. Um, I guess you know just to wrap up here. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about, or you'd like our listeners to know? Um. I would just encourage you to look at our website or social media, um, JackieForSenate.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram because I'm millennial. Um, She's a millennial. (laughs) Like, just like Mayor Pete. (laughs) No way. No, you guys, you have have a lot in common with Mayor Pete. He's a millennial. (laughs) You're a millennial. Elect millennials. I did not know he was going up. Okay. Um, Well, yeah. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, this is absolutely uh, part of a larger movement. It's still really weird to see my name places and to see my face, and it gets really just weird and exhausting. Is the but. pressure like? Is it? Yeah, it, I I would love to like maybe run for office someday, but then I also am like, oh my god, I'm never doing that because like <laughs> I already hate people like digging through my shit because I'm a comedian, and it must, <laughs> must be like ten thousand times more intense if you're running for office. Yeah, uh, it hasn't gotten to that level yet, but you know, if we're if we're doing all right, it will probably get there. And honestly, you know, it's it's a uh, it's definitely a sacrifice, but there are so many. Um, things that need to be need to get done, and it it doesn't matter who's who's on the ballot, just that they get done. Well, I hope you win. This has really been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, 
yes please donate to jackie's campaign uh you know i, I can tell you that uh and besides what you can hear her saying in this interview uh the vibes are great <laughs> so um yes thank you so much for coming on reply guys jackie thank you thanks for having me kate Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.